This is the Amplify Podcast, the voice of the third space, which is being recorded under quarantine conditions by a Google Hangout in central Oklahoma. I'm Suzette Gorillat. This is a special series called Corruption is Deadly. In our ninth episode of the series, Sarah Banna and I welcome back two previous guests to continue a discussion about police violence that prompted protests and how and why the police have responded to protests with violence. Our two guests today are Quentin Williams and Virgil Green. Quentin is an attorney, former FBI agent, former federal prosecutor, an entrepreneur, business strategist, author, motivational speaker, educator, and community advocate. Virgil Green is the former police chief for the city of Spencer, Oklahoma, and has more than two decades worth of law enforcement experience in both Oklahoma and Arkansas. Please listen to our conversation about where we are today with policing and protests in the United States, as it is more important than ever to understand how and why corruption in this area is not only costly, but deadly. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the next episode of Corruption is Deadly, which is a special series of the Amplify podcast. I'm Suzette Gorillat, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Sarah Banna. Welcome, Sarah Banna. Thanks for being here, as always. And we have two special guests with us today, and they're actually recurring guests. I don't know if we should call them gluttons for punishment or what, because they keep showing up to talk to us. We're so grateful for that. But we have Quentin Williams and Virgil Green with us today. So Quentin and uh, Virgil, thank you so much for joining us once again on the Corruption is Deadly podcast. Glad to be here. Glad to be joining you guys today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, both of you have such tremendous amount of knowledge and experience in the law enforcement world. Uh, So you've been really helpful in helping us navigate some of the issues we've been dealing with regarding policing and particularly corruption and troubling issues within the law enforcement community. And so we thought we would talk today about this ironic situation that we're in, that we have an uprising on the streets, people protesting about police violence after after forever, we've w- witnessed a lot of police violence, but certainly after the most recent public execution, basically, of George Floyd in Minneapolis, we've had not only a national but a global uprising regarding police violence. But here in the United States, of course, it's continued for well over a month. I think we're, we're about to go into a second month of protests, most of which are not involving violence, but many and too many of which are being met with police violence in response and also the use of excessive charges and bail. And we can get into that later. But, you know, given both of your backgrounds in law enforcement, Chief Green, you here locally and and Quentin, you having worked with law enforcement agencies around the country and having been in, in the FBI for some period of time, you know, how are we to wrap our heads around that, that we're protesting police violence and yet we're being met with police violence? I will say that it kind of reminds you when you go back and you look at the images that took place during the civil rights era uh, with those peaceful protesting. And you had state police and local police all who had pretty much made up their minds that they were not going to allow the peaceful protesters to be peaceful, that they were going to have a handy, a heavy hand and enforcing whatever laws that they wanted to enforce or whatever they want to make up for that day. So for me, it reminds me of just looking at those images and those pictures of what took place in, in the late 60s and 70s and that you've got 
law enforcement who has the mindset that if you're doing something that we don't want you to do, then we're going to make things difficult. Instead of allowing a peaceful protest to go about, you're going to be met with some resistance. So for me, being a police chief and being in law enforcement, when you talk about de-escalating things, you're kind of going against your own policy and your own training when you talk about de-escalating, but you're actually escalating the situation. And I, uh, I agree with what the chief just said. I have to also underscore that this, to me, highlights the need for transformation, not just reformation. We need to look at how we pivot off of the position we have been in uh, as an industry, as a law enforcement industry for centuries, and look at what we're going to do to transform the way uh, law enforcement operates. So when we look at overseeing um, in some in some capacity, that's what law enforcement is perceived to do in communities. And when peace is met with violence, it puts a spotlight on that concept. Law enforcement should be a partner with the community, not a supervisor of the community. As a matter of fact, law enforcement should be a supplement to the community's efforts, not the primary force in the community. And until we get to that point, I think we're going to be running, uh, you know, chasing after our tails. We have to completely transform the way we think about law enforcement's role in the community. And once we do that, we will be on our road to reconciliation. To follow up on something you said, Chief Green, about the civil rights era images and this notion of basically power is being challenged, right, is that we're in this space where the power of the police, the power of the dominant mode of operation in society is being challenged, and they're not going to make it easy for us <laughs> to challenge it, right? So the thing is, is that like, it's just so cyclical and, and kind of this vicious circle because those of us in the community that are resisting the power, and then the power resists our resistance. And so it's just this kind of fundamental position of being at odds with one another. And so the thought of even like how to get to where you're talking about, Quentin, this notion of being partners, you know, and one not being a supervisor, that this is a more equal relationship and not a hierarchical one or one based on a power dynamic. Like we're just in this really vicious place, right? And and perhaps have been for a very long time, going back to like what you were saying, Chief Green, uh, the imagery coming out of the 50s and 60s, that how do we break out of that vicious circle, cycle, place where we are? You know, we can break out of that cycle. But I think one of the things that you have to realize is is the culture of law enforcement. And I don't even think some of the people even realize the culture that that we're in. And for them to have some kind of open mind about, hey, you know, the things that happened before are things that should not happen here in, in the current time. And so it reminds me of, of I was watching a, a video this morning of a peaceful protest in, I want to say, in the late 60s, where a group of individuals were trying to march to, I guess, some courthouse in Alabama. And the sheriff told them that they could not march to this courthouse 
it was peaceful. They wanted to go to this courthouse and pray. This was being recorded, and he basically said, I don't care. Your prayers does not even reach above you. And and we're not talking maybe, what, 40, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And so when you have people that are in law enforcement nationwide who have been in with the department for 30 or 40 years, they have that culture is built in that agency. And they don't know anything else other than the culture of what they have been a part of. And so when you see people who are peacefully protesting, who want to have their voices heard, you've got individuals all the way up to the chiefs and the sheriffs who are saying, how dare you question my authority? If we tell you to move, you need to move. And if you don't move, then we're going to use the other part of the criminal justice system to put you in jail. We're going to use the other part of the system to make you bond out of jail with a high bond. And it's just the, that cycle. But it just goes back to me is that the culture of law enforcement is so resistant to change. And when you hear people say they want to change, you have to question is it something that they really want to do? So it just goes back to me, Suzette, is that it's just the culture of policing that we've seen for centuries and that it is not changing at all. That's a brilliant analysis because that's what it is. It's culture. It's all about culture. Yes. And and the the culture that we have had has gone unchecked for centuries. And within that culture we have to acknowledge that it exists and it has existed. The issue that I have found most prevalent amongst our brethren in law enforcement is that acknowledgement piece is hard for them to come to grips with. When I teach law enforcement and I talk about reconciliation and I get to the part where I talk about acknowledgement, because you must have acknowledgement in order to gain any sense of reconciliation, when I start to talk about acknowledgement, people actually get out of their seats and walk out. Those who are resistant, who are defensive, who are not open-minded, who have not come to the room with humility and left that ego outside, some of them actually get up and walk out. I've, I've seen it. And these are leaders. These are chiefs and sheriffs. They, and imagine if they're getting, out, getting up and walking out, what does that mean for everybody they are supervising? What are they going to do? They, they, they are setting that kind of a culture. And when I talk about acknowledgement, I talk about slave patrols and how slave patrols were the incarnation of modern day law enforcement. Not saying that our modern day law enforcement are slave patrol officers are slave patrols, but this is where the distrust comes from. Centuries ago when we had slave patrols and that acknowledgement is very important because you have to learn about where you were in order to find out how you're gonna to go to where you wanna be. And to get up out of your seat and walk out because you don't wanna hear that that was our history, factual history. It speaks to the culture. It's gonna be one way or the highway. And Chief said something about, you know, you're gonna do what we say you're gonna do or else we take it to the next level. That's exactly the opposite approach that should be taken with many people. With many people, it should be, yo, man, can you come over here for a second? Let me speak to you. Let me just uh, holler at you for a second. You know, this is, this is about to get ugly, and it doesn't have to get ugly. So what is it that you need? What, what are you looking for? 
how can we help you? I mean, this, we're, we're partners. How can we do that? A lot of our law enforcement officers don't know that that approach exists. And a lot of them do. So a lot of them use that and it works, but a lot of them don't. And for those who don't, they have to be trained better. They, they, it also has to be accepted to them. They have to, be re they have to receive the training in that vein to believe that they are partners with the community. What has been really bewildering to me um, as someone who was on the site of some of the police brutality in response to demonstrations of police brutality was, I mean, honestly, I was shocked on the scene as I was watching police patrol cars just at, at high speeds driving towards demonstrators, uh, not clear whether they had any intention of stopping or running them over from the way that they got out of their cars and started swinging batons. Um, and this was in response it, on a local level. Obviously, we've seen these images across the nation, in some places even worse than what we've experienced in, here in Oklahoma. But batons just randomly flying, um, random arbitrary use of force, excessive use of force. You know, what I had been trained by law enforcement, which which is the appropriate protocol for civil disobedience, a response to civil disobedience is not what I experienced happening on site. And that is why I was so bewildered. As I was on the scene, I couldn't decipher if I was dealing with a bunch of angry rookie cops who maybe didn't go through the training, whether it was intentional. And at some point, I was just standing around questioning the intellect and the capacity of law enforcement to understand and process this moment, because the way that they responded in reality really confirmed the very things that demonstrators were protesting against. And I would think that somebody with intellect would not want to contribute and produce more evidence against allegations being made against them. But they were so bold in their utilization of force and violence, which may go back to that cultural piece that you guys spoke about, because historically policing has been a force, right? Uh, maybe it is training that anytime there is conflict, you respond to it with more force. I'm just bewildered at what I've observed, what I've seen, and maybe possibly one of you all could walk us through what the protocol and appropriate response to civil disobedience is. And civil disobedience is something that has historically existed in American history, something that we continue to celebrate on Dr. King's Day. Um, so I am really still bewildered at the state's response whether it's through the police all the way to the DAs and the charging and the excessive bail and bond, what is happening? <laughs> Why is there such a misunderstanding? I believe that it, it just goes back to, and, and I'll probably sound like a broken record when it just goes back to me continue to say it's the culture. Mr. Williams made a comment about the slave patrols. I think when you look at how that all came about as a black man and you you know, I tell my officers, uh, I wake up as a black man and I go to sleep as a black man, but in the middle of the day, I'm a police chief. And I never, don't forget that. And so I think when you restrict people's movement, uh, you know, a, a young black kid or a couple of black kids could be walking down the street and a police officer passes them and he'd turn back around and, and stop them and question them, ask them where they're going. But they haven't done anything. So when you look at that and you have to ask yourself, how different is that from the slave patrols? Because again, you're 
questioning somebody who, to your knowledge, have they haven't done anything. You haven't got a call about them, but you're restricting where they go. You're questioning them where they're going. And if they don't cooperate with you and give you that information, that person will probably find themselves in the backseat of a car handcuffed and on their way to jail for a charge of obstructing. And it's the most simplest charge you could try to find either obstruction or interfering with uh, with an officer in the performance of their duty. So, you know, Sarah, I think, you know, when you talk about the things that have occurred even here locally in Oklahoma City, it, it makes it goes back to an agencies who have never had up until and I've been around Oklahoma City since uh, in law enforcement since 97. And I've never seen anything like that. And you are dealing with a city who has never dealt with anything like that before. And so the only way of their response was to do what they normally do. And that is if somebody refuses to move or get out of an intersection, take them to jail. About whatever force you have to use, you use that force. And then when you have a prosecutor who says, well, you know, we're going to take this to a whole nother level. We're going to make examples out of people. That is the wrong tone to set when you say you're going to make example out of people who were doing nothing but peaceful protesting. So there's a lot of things that need to change, but it just goes back to the culture. It goes back to the leaderships and those leaders who are willing to step outside of their comfort zone to do something that they might feel that, hey, this is the best thing to do. But around them, they've got people looking at them who are saying, no, that's not how we we operate. So we, we're not going to change. So if you remember that video I sent to you, Sarah, of Chief Gurley, he was so comfortable to come out to do a, uh, this video uh, to talk about how horrible the George Floyd incident was and that, you know, everybody saw the video, how outrageous it was that they condemned the video. But when you are doing just the opposite, when you're dealing with people in your city, you're not really setting the tone that you are being public servants to everybody in the city. Whether you agree with what they're doing, at least allow the people the opportunity to peacefully uh, say what they have to say without putting them in a position for taking them to jail. That obstruction and resisting and, you know, that's how it starts. And these are microaggressions. These are microaggressions that when we talk about what the chief mentioned, you know, kids just walking in one direction, a police officer walking in another direction, they give them a look and they stop them. And there are plenty of videos online about this. Stop them. Where are you going? That's all a microaggression. Kids aren't doing anything, but they're being impeded from going someplace just because either they looked at the cop uh, in a certain way or maybe they didn't do anything. This is what, as a result of the accumulation of this over time, it creates this distrust. And that's a missed moment right there. That's a moment when instead of where you're going, it should be, I just want to introduce myself. I want you to know that, you know, I don't know if you live in this neighborhood, but if you do, I want you to know who I am. So if you have any anything that I could do for you, please come and see me and, um, you know, have a great day. And uh, here's my number, here's my card, whatever I can do for you. Completely different interaction. 
in that 20 seconds, you just open the door to trust as opposed to closing it shut. That's what needs to happen. I mean, this is not, this is unquestionable. There's, there's no negotiation on this. If it doesn't happen, what we see in the streets will escalate. So this has to happen for the well-being of everybody. On that note of escalation, I mean, that is what we're seeing happening now. Just a few days ago, we saw a report out of Portland, Oregon, where some strangely uniformed dudes in camo, basically, and unmarked vehicles are rolling up on protesters walking away from protests, walking away, going home, and being snagged and thrown into unmarked vans and taken off to be charged with things like obstruction or whatever. I mean, this is this is getting kind of outrageous. I mean, it's been outrageous. I mean, I was with Sarah at the two initial protests in Oklahoma City. I too was absolutely shocked and horrified by the reaction of the Oklahoma City Police Department and officers. And since then have been, continued to be shocked and horrified at the narrative and the lies and the way in which they've completely misrepresented what happened those two nights in the face of video evidence, in the face of the actual truth of the matter, and then what's happened since with excessive charges and bail, et cetera. But I mean, this is escalating. And now it's escalating to the point where other agents are getting involved. And I think the thing that's concerning to me is that we've got this issue. Well, there are many things that are concerning to me. But we've got this issue of culture and this existing culture and the history of policing and all of the things that you all are talking about. We're all mentioning here of all the problems but it's like it's escalating to the point to where they're really trying to intimidate, discourage, and silence people that are out on the streets that, let's say, haven't been out on the streets, right? There are a lot of people that saw what happened to George Floyd and said, this is the last fucking straw for me, you know? And so we've got a lot of new people, a lot of new voices, a lot of young people, a lot of folks coming out that wouldn't normally come out and do these sorts of things, peacefully protest, sit on lawns, stand outside of police departments with signs or whatever. And the cops are responding with this excessive force. They're doing these scary things using tactics like rolling up on people and snagging them off the streets to intimidate, discourage, and silence. This goes even beyond actually what the police do on a daily basis. This is like fundamentally destructive to our entire democracy and way of life. If we want to call it a democracy, I still struggle with that. But nonetheless, you know, our fundamental, at least philosophically held values and ideas about what we are all about, freedom of speech, et cetera, freedom to organize, to, you know, assemble, et cetera, that is all coming under fire. And it's coming under fire back to that thing that we were talking about before is that, you know, they're being met with resistance. And so they're resisting. And it's like, you're not going to take this power away from me. You're not going to look, I'm going to do by like any means necessary, keep you from challenging my power. How are we supposed to wrap our minds around that and figure out how to fix it? To follow up on what you just said, because what we noticed on a lot of these scenes was that people were actually participating in de-escalation and the police were refusing to de-escalate. For me, it goes back to law enforcement has not learned anything from the past history of policing. And one of the things that 
you look at is that with these peaceful protests, law enforcement feels that they are outnumbered, that there are more protesters than there are law enforcement. So one of the things that you've got people in leadership that are supervisors that will say, well, for us to get the attention of, of people such as what happened in Portland, we'll come up with a device and we'll implement this here because in their minds that they have, man, this is a, a good game plan. This is our A game plan. And if we do this, we're going to get the attention of people and it's going to make the people disperse and, and leave. Now, what that has done is it just has brought out more people and more people who are more educated, more people who are who have looked at this and said, we're tired of seeing the same thing occurring. And it's every race. It's just not black people. It's just not what you've got every race that's involved with this. And it just goes back to the deal that law enforcement is not prepared to deal with this. And you also have this part of law enforcement that has the, that it's another part of the culture, culture thing that I talked about is law enforcement is a paramilitary organization. So when you have that mindset that we are a paramilitary organization, then now you're going to take a playbook from the military and you're going to put it into policing. And now that just escalates things to another level because you've got people who are seeing officers go from being in a regular uniform to officers being in riot gear now to tanks being driven down the streets or other equipment being used. So again, it just goes back to the things that I tell people is that, you know, when you think you've got a good plan, your good plan is not the A plan. You're just compounding your problems in the situation into something that at some point you cannot control it. And what's going to happen is now when force is used, somebody is going to end up getting hurt or killed out of this situation versus, like you said, de-escalate it, talk to people, let people get out what they need to say, because at the end of the day, they're going to go home. But what you are doing, you're trying to control the narrative. And if people are not listening to what you're trying to say, then you're just going to trump it up and say, we're just going to do what we want to do. And if that means putting you in a, in a police car and we rough you up, so what? You put yourself in that situation. So again, it just goes back to law enforcement has not learned anything from the history of policing. And they have refused to listen to those of us who have been observant to the history of policing and civil rights. I can tell you guys on the evening of May 30th, I immediately, within as soon as the police brutality and violence unleashed, immediately tried to reach out to Chief Gorley directly. Um, I tried to convince him of what I knew based on the relationship, the work that we've done through community policing. I reminded him that this is not how you community police that this type of brutality is going to actually escalate and backfire. These are not the types of footages you want to produce. And the response that I received that was that anybody blocking traffic would be arrested and brutalized. Brutalized wasn't the word that he used, but basically that well, whatever would need to happen would happen. 
And then we've had a series of incidents after uh, May 30th and 31st, one of which is there were discussions by a city councilwoman, you know, inquiring into statistics that has placed Oklahoma City and its police department second in the nation for the number of per capita killings, 70% of those people non-whites, while the city's population um, of non-whites is only 33%. Um, the police chief goes on public record denying those statistics, alleging that they are uh, inflated, only to be then reinvestigated by investigative journalists to be countered to basically expose the chief's lack of integrity and truth-telling and understanding his own police department's statistics. Then we had the incident of his refusal to come out to meet with protesters, where it, once again, he was advised by those who knew that it is important and critical in reestablishing faith and trust that you go and connect to those you've oppressed and hear them out. He refused to do that. Then he follows up with the live feed that he does, where he alleges and puts the blame in Minneapolis. This doesn't happen in OKC, he says. And why is it that we have to pay for something that happened somewhere else? Only to be exposed, um, I think it was within days that he had had a similar homicide and killing right here in Oklahoma City, where a man said, I cannot breathe. And his officer's response was, I don't care. And that is one of many cases, right? Um, so we, particularly from my perspective, I am at a point when we talk about culture is that the culture of the Oklahoma City Police Department, my local police department is deeply sick. And that culture and that tone is set by the police chief. We have also learned that it was the police chief himself who directed his officers to shut it down immediately, right? Um, so I think we've got a deep-rooted problem, and it goes all the way to the chief himself, his, lack, his incompetence, his lack of understanding of history and the importance of this moment. And I think it is starting to cause damage to our police department, to our community, and it's becoming costly, both on a human and a financial level. But with that said, I'd like to hear what you guys think. Hey, I just want to say this, and, and I try not to be negative and, and try to find something good to say, even when things are, even when you can't find anything good to say. I go back, and this is a strong word to use, and I've used it on our podcast show, is that law enforcement is one of the most segregated workplace uh, there is in this country. And when you make a statement and you use the word segregated, you just set off bells and people turn red faced, they get mad and they look at you and say, you are not one of us. You are not one of us because you just made a statement that goes against everything of every principle with law enforcement. But I say, look at, li listen to this guys, just look at what is occurring and what has occurred and look, this is a segregated profession. And until that segregated profession changes its ways, you will always be met with resistance. But it just goes back to what I believe is that the culture and it, the segregation of how law enforcement has segregated itself from the public. And you can look at every agency around the Oklahoma City metro area and every agency outside of Oklahoma and ask yourself, what agency is deep-rooted in their city? And you might find one or two, but you're not going to find every single agency because 
they segregate themselves from the public that they are supposed to serve and protect. Yeah, I agree with everything the chief had to say. I mean, this is this is based in culture. It's based in history. We have to acknowledge where we've been and where we want to go. And and chief said something very profound about being outnumbered. Well, yes, law enforcement is severely outnumbered, and the public knows that now, and that's that's an issue. It's an issue because unless law enforcement that makes the conscious decision as an industry to be partners, they will now always be up against a party that knows it outnumbers them. And that's not a that's not a good leveraged position to be in. So the best remedy for that is to say, we're going to be your partner. We're going to help you. We're going to supplement what you do in your community. And when you need us, we're there. That's it. Let's keep this simple. Well, thank you all so much. I'll just just mention on the issue of numbers. Of course, we may outnumber them, but they outarm us, right? So that's that's a big distinction. And that's, I think, what's being used in many cases in terms of their presence, you know, that armed presence in society with when you've got the bearcats out there and all of the, you know, heavy presence of military equipment. Well, we have hit our time today, but I cannot thank you both enough. Sarah and I are so grateful, Quentin and Virgil, that you've both returned to this show and this time together. I think it really um, added just a, a great deal of you know, really rich information and perspective on what we're talking about here. Um, but we didn't, of course, get to touch on, like we usually don't, get to touch on everything we wanted to discuss. And we definitely need to deal with this issue, as Quentin raised it, about transformation of the police force, you know, issues of defunding from, from reform to defunding to abolition. I mean, we really need to dive into a lot of those things and how and what the barriers and concerns are going to be about a lot of those things. So hopefully the both of you will agree to come back again again soon to address those issues. But thank you so much for your conversation today. Really helpful. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. You've been listening to the Amplify podcast, the voice of the third space. This episode was recorded via Google Hangout and produced by Jackie Sexton Braun in Central Oklahoma. Find more about us and the resources we mention in our podcast discussions online at OurNameIsAmplify.com. You can also follow and interact with us on Facebook and Instagram at OurNameIsAmplify and on Twitter at OurNameIsAmp. Thank you for listening and for joining us in this fight to do what is right. <laughs>